we'll, we'll see how much of this we can get through. Um, Exodus 14. I'm going to read Exodus 14 together and then a few verses in Exodus 15. And I want to remind you that we're kind of in this, this, this series on assurance. Assurance of salvation. Can you, as someone who is young, have assurance of salvation? And I would argue you can. Maybe not to the fullest Maybe not in, in a mature form like your parents can or your grandparents can have assurance of salvation. But you can, even now today, put yourself on a track of growth and assurance. And even in being on that track, that route, that road to assurance, you will have assurance of your salvation. Even, even in starting, starting to follow Jesus the way he calls you to, assurance will come into your life. There will be fruits of assurance in your life. And that's our, our, our short series that we're going through. And I want to just take um, this, this morning and next week's morning to talk about assurance from the book of Exodus. I want to argue to you that the book of Exodus is actually written, calculated in its structure and in its argument to strengthen assurance in the faith of young people. Exodus is written for young faith to be assured in God's salvation. That God is better, that God is sufficient, and that God endures with you. That, that is what Exodus is written for. Now, I'm not going to try to go over all of Exodus. We're just going to cover maybe the first 18 chapters of Exodus. So, real easy, right? Real easy. Um, I think Exodus should be outlined like this. Um, uh, first off, Exodus 1 through 18 is the God who redeems. And then Exodus um, 19... 19 through 24 is the God who requires. And then Exodus 25 through 40 is the God who remains. That's what you see in Exodus. You see a God who redeems, gives requirements, and then a God who dwells, who remains with his people. And that's, that's what brings assurance into our life. And, and once again, Exodus is written for young faith to be deepened and strengthened in the knowledge of their God. And that's what we want to talk about. Here, I'm going to read to you Exodus 14. Exodus 14. This is God's word. We're going to read all of Exodus 14, a very familiar passage, but I want you to see, I want you to see how assurance of salvation even can come from this. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I, this is the Lord speaking, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, just like the Lord said. And they said, what is this we have done? 
that we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped at the sea by pi ha Hereth, and in front of Belzaphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because... There are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood between them, and coming between the host of, the, of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night." Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back, and a strong east wind all night made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand, and the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled, 
into it the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. Thus, thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, Sing this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for what is meant to cause in us. It's meant to propel us in our faith and in our assurance, not of ourselves, of our greatness, but of your greatness and your splendor, of your might, of your power, of your provision, of your protection, of your faithfulness. I pray that this passage and and all the chapters before this uh, would be clear in our minds even and we'd see the 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 proper application of them to our own lives so pray this all in jesus's name amen exodus shows you a god who saves doesn't it it shows you a god who saves on a magnificent scale right this, this God seems to want to show off his power in the way he saves his people. Why? Why does God want glory over Pharaoh? Why does he want his people to be on the brink of turning away from him and fleeing to their sinful former slave masters? Oh, why does God spend so long to show God's people his glory in Egypt? Well, I would argue it's for their assurance. And it's for yours as well. And let's look at this. We're going to look at Exodus here this week and next week. And Exodus once again shows a God who saves in order to bring you assurance of your salvation. There are three truths from assurance, uh, for assurance that we get from Exodus. And we're only going to talk about one of those truths. Because once again, I'm not going to have enough time to do all three. Let's look at what Exodus teaches us in the first 18 chapters. And it basically teaches you this. It just teaches you about your God. This is a God who redeems. This is a God who redeems. And I would add, he does it with fireworks. You ever, you ever see fireworks? Fireworks means that, that, that some sort of celebration is happening often, but also it, it announces something. It does it so all of the surrounding community can see something big and important is happening here. And God, in the way he saves and redeems his people from Egypt, 
is parallel to the way he saves in the New Testament. He does it in such a way that we cannot help but see his glory and see his power and see his strength. This is a God who redeems. The word redeems is only used twice in the book of Exodus. It's, it's, used, it's used right before Moses returns to Egypt and then right after Moses um, leads God's people out here in this song of Moses, it is used. It's only used twice, but it is a huge word. It's very important. A God who redeems. What does it mean to redeem? It means to buy something. It means to purchase something for yourself. It means to claim something, lay legal claim on something as if it is your own. In the New Testament, the parallel word redemption is used often to speak of a slave who is purchased from the slave block so that he may belong to the one who purchased him. It's not purchasing him so that he may be free, but purchasing him so that he may belong to you. It is, it is saying when you redeem someone, it's saying, I have bought you, you are mine. That's what it means to redeem, and this is our God. He is a God who redeems, redeems people who are in slavery. This is the book of Exodus. Turn back with me in Exodus to Exodus 6, the first time he uses this word. Exodus 6, uh, God is talking to Moses. And of course, you know, you know the account of Moses at the burning bush. The Lord gives Moses so much assurance of his power and his provision. And Moses can only see his inability. But here, the Lord talks about his plan for Moses in Egypt. In Moses 6, verse 6, the Lord says to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Notice, the Lord is planning to save his people, and he's going to do it in such a way that their faith in him will be strengthened. Where does assurance come from? Hint. It comes from a faith that is unshakable in God. And you see that. You see that all throughout. So there's a few things I want to point out here, just about the God who redeems. The God who redeems his people. A few facets of this just account in in the first 18 chapters. Uh, First off, I want you to notice, and this is for your assurance, I want you to notice where God's people are when he redeems them. They are in slavery. They are completely helpless. And not only that, Look at chapter 2, verse 23. Look at how pathetic they are. Look at how weak they are. Uh, look at how spiritually blind they are. Uh, 2, 23. Uh, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
Now, this is something we all understand, right? They've been in Egypt for a long time. And initially, they went there because Joseph, Joseph brought them there to provide for them, to protect them. And we see in, in Exodus 1, 1 and following, that they multiply in Egypt. God blesses them. God continues his plan that he promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 to multiply and bless his descendants. This is what's happening. God is fulfilling his promise in Egypt. But notice the multiplication and the blessing is intermingled with painful slavery. We see that in the beginning verses. They increased and they multiplied. In verse 8 of chapter 1, the the new king rises up who doesn't know Joseph and says, They're too many for us. They're too mighty for us. Let's enslave them. Israel's in Egypt. and, And we understand they're groaning, right? They've seen king after king come, and now in chapter 2, verse 23, they see another king, and their situation is not changing. And they're groaning. They're groaning. They're crying out because of their burdens. And notice, the verse doesn't say they cry out to God, does it? It just says they're crying out because of their burdens. Matter of fact, look at what it also says. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. It's, it's almost as if Moses, who's writing this, is, is trying to let you see this. Do you see? They're crying for help. But they are so lost, they don't even know who to cry out to. They're just letting prayers go up to any God who will hear them. But their prayers find their way to the Lord God. And is it, is it because of a way they prayed? Is it because of who they were? Is, is it because of uh, their, their reverence? We're given no indication that the Lord God is listening to them because of the way they prayed. But we're, giving, we're given every indication that the Lord God chooses to hear their prayers because of the kind of God that he is. Look at, look at. Their cry for rescue found its way up to the Lord, its God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Notice, why is God going to act in redeeming love to the children of Israel? Because God has made a promise before the foundation of the world to save a people. Right? And God has made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And God is going to act not based on their faithfulness, but based on his own covenant promise. That is who God is. This is where God's people are. This is behind the scenes in their weakness. We have a very strong God. And notice, the way that redemption begins in Egypt is calculated to bring you assurance. Especially if you're a young Israelite, right? Right? It wasn't, well, I was uh, on the top of my game spiritually that the Lord decided to save me. If anything, we know from Ephesians 2 from the first couple chapters of Romans in the New Testament, that it was, well, we were dead enemies and running away from God as far as we could, right? 
This is the God who saves, the God who redeems. He chooses us, not based on our goodness, but based on His own choice, His own free, sovereign grace. That brings incredible assurance when you don't feel so great, doesn't it? This is the God who redeems. But there's another facet here in these, these opening chapters I want you guys to notice. Notice the, the purpose. The purpose in, in the way in which God saves. You know Exodus probably very well. You know, right, what happens next. Moses goes to Egypt, and then we have all of these plagues begin. What is the purpose of the plagues in the hearts of the people of Israel? And what can be the purpose of these plagues in your hearts as well? Was it because Pharaoh and his army were so strong? This was like God had to fight a war of attrition. You know what a war of attrition is? You know, World War I. Okay, you've got a lot of guys, we've got a lot of guys. We're just going to keep fighting each other until one of us runs out of guys. It's going to take a long time because you're strong, we're strong, we're just going to keep fighting until you wear out, right? It's, it's a war of endurance. Who can last the longest? Is it because Pharaoh's army is so great and so glorious and so strong that it takes God a long time to defeat him? No, because I already spoiled the ending for you, right? God destroys Pharaoh in one foul swoop right at the, the, the waters, right? And right, right before that, he, he takes out every firstborn male in Egypt simply by passing over their house, right? It is not hard for the Lord to destroy people. It is not hard for God to liberate a people. Why, why, why do all these plagues happen? Why do we need all of these plagues? It wasn't because Pharaoh was strong. Well, we see it there, the answer there in 6 verse 6. I already read it to you. It's, it's with an outstretched arm he's going to do this. With great acts of judgment he is going to do this. And turn over to 7 verse 1. Exodus 7 verse 1. God here reveals to Moses the reason why it's going to be so hard and it's going to take so long. Why? It's because the Lord wants to communicate a message about himself. Chapter 7, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land, his land, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Notice, it's going to take a long time because God wants to take a long time. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. This is the plan from the beginning. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Notice, what's the reason why all these plagues happen? It's so that Egypt's, Egyptians will know that he alone is the Lord, right? Do you ever paint floors? It doesn't happen very often, right? When you're painting a floor, first off, you've got to answer a few questions. Number one, why in the world would I ever paint a floor? <laughs> well, maybe your floor is 
you know, just irreparably damaged. Uh, maybe you're actually trying to stain the floor, right? A wood floor. You're trying to stain a floor, right? Either way, I mean, whether you're painting your, your playhouse in the backyard because you think a floor painted would be cool, or you're staining your mom's beautiful hardwood floor, you have to have a strategy about yourself, right? Because there's, there's one sin that you cannot commit. You cannot paint yourself into a corner. Because if you paint yourself into a corner, then you're going to have to walk over the floor that you just painted and ruin it, right? You've got to have a strategy about how you paint the floor. So I'm painting my way out the door, right? This is similar to when you wash the floor, right? I'm washing my way out of the kitchen. I don't start in the doorway and wash my way into a corner. That's a terrible idea, right? I would suggest to you that the reason why God takes so long in Egypt is because, as we see in chapter 7, because he is intentionally trying to paint the Egyptians into a corner, right? That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to remove any other excuse, any other explanation than the one that he alone is Lord. And I'd also suggest to you that the reason why he takes so long in Egypt is because he's trying to paint every single Israelite also into a corner, remove any other explanation, any other excuse. It was only and only because of the Lord that we got out of Egypt. It wasn't because we were strong enough. It wasn't because we were willing enough. It wasn't because we were even spiritual, even glorious in God's eyes that God saved us. God alone did it for his own purpose and for his own glory. He's trying to paint them into a corner as well. And I'd also submit to you that he's trying to paint you into a corner too, right? So that you see yourself in these Israelites and you say, that's me. That's just like my situation. There is no other hope for me than the sovereign mercy, grace, and redemption of the Lord God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing else There's nothing else that I can cling to. There's no other explanation I can give. That is the only hope I have, and it's hope in Jesus alone. That's what God's trying to do here. He's trying to get you to see Jesus in all of his glory and say to yourself when the hard times of life come, where else shall I go? He has the words of eternal life. There's no other hope outside of Him. There is no other way. There's no other answer. There's no other peace for my soul than in Jesus and Jesus alone. Where else can I go? Only in Jesus can I find assurance of my greatest needs. It's so that you will look at every enticement, every temptation, every trouble, every worry, every danger, every problem, and say in your heart, but the Lord is bigger and the Lord is better. How could I ever go back on Him? Right? That's what He's trying to do. I would say that assurance of salvation comes from the spiritual fruit of such faith as that, right? The faith that holds to Jesus like no other. 
that's painted into a corner by the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ produces spiritual fruit that will give you assurance. But it's a faith that's convinced that in Jesus and Jesus alone is life, joy, peace. Nothing else is better than Jesus. That's the purpose. I want you to notice one more facet of the kind of of the, the situation here. And this is just to, to make an observation on the kind of people that God redeems. Now maybe this is going to sound redundant, but there's actually something very important for you to see here. The kind of people that God redeems. We turn now to Exodus 14. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. We turn now to these chapters and, and feel the drama of this. They have just seen Egypt be ruined. By the Egyptians' own testimony, our country is devastated. This is the finger of God. They have seen all of God's powerful assurance, assurances of His glory and supremacy over any other God, right? They have even seen the Lord God in His judgments make precise distinction between them and the Egyptians. Remember the the plague of the livestock when Egypt's livestock goes down, but not Israel's. This Lord is precise and powerful. He can take out one man and a thousand, and He can take out a thousand men like that. Right? He's a God that works in distinction. They have seen, they have seen how powerful he is. Overnight, he wipes out one male from every single household. Overnight. You'd think, you'd think such knowledge would create more of a stalwart faith in the Israelites, wouldn't it? You're thinking like, man, I'm never, I'm never leaving this God. He is sufficient for all of my problems. Matter of fact, that's just what Pastor David said. This should produce in me a faith that believes in God as better than everything else in life. And that's why it's so shocking and frightful to me. When we get to Exodus 14, what do the children of Israel say? And notice this, they were warned. They were warned by the Lord God through Moses himself that he was turning them around so that the Egyptians would come and attack them. And when they see the Egyptians come, suddenly their minds about God and their minds about their situation change again. What do they say? Verse 12, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. And then notice what they also say. It would have been better for us to die there. It's better for us to be with the Egyptians in slavery than to be with this God. That's what they're saying. When their situation changes, when, when things get a little bit scary and dicey on following God, suddenly, suddenly what happens to God's people? Their sight becomes short, and their memory becomes deceptive, right? That they would actually think it was better in Egypt. Don't you guys remember about groaning in Egypt? Don't you remember that? Groaning for years? 
Don't you, don't you remember all the signs that God did? And now you're saying it would be better for you to be back with them and their gods? Didn't you see how God devastated all of their gods? And then God takes them through the Red Sea, and, and, and you, you'd think now they'd believe, because that's what the Bible tells you. But then you read in chapter 15, verse 22, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah, because it was bitter, therefore it was named Merah. That's kind of how names go. Verse 24, And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Right? Here they are grumbling, verses away from the greatest song they've ever sung in their entire life, and their hearts are turning on the faithfulness of God in their life. Do you feel that? Do you understand how that goes? You can go from singing God's praises to grumbling about your situation in a matter of words. But that's not even the worst one. Turn to 16, Exodus 16. Exodus 16, they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel come to the wilderness of Sin, a great name for a place you want to hang out in, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out of this wilderness to kill this whole congregation with hunger. Essentially, once again, it is better for us to be in Egypt. Would would that the Lord had left us there to die because at least we had meat pots. You can go in a matter of verses from glorifying God's great salvation and saying things like verse 11 of chapter 15, Who is like the Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You can go from singing that to grumbling and saying it was better for us with those meat pots. Right? Why is this? Why do the children of Israel do this? Well, number one, because they're like you and they're like me. Because the the kinds of people that God redeems are very weak people indeed with short sight and deceitful minds and memories, right? They think fondly on the consequences of sin in their life in the past, and they think shortly on the faithfulness of God in the past, right? Their minds are not very quick and alert. It's because they have not been diligent to put themselves into a corner of God's faithfulness, right? These people have not woken up day after day after day saying, I'm going to remember what happened in Egypt. Because I never, ever, ever want to think something do something that is faithless to this God. This God is better than all other gods. I'm going to personally, in my own prayers, paint myself into a corner of God's faithfulness morning by morning because He is too good of a God to just leave. Right? And that leads us to 
kind of our, our conclusion, I would say. How do you strengthen yourself? How do you strengthen yourself? How do you strengthen yourself for faith? That's what we want. I would say, number one, question what you see. Question what you see. Because remember, your minds can deceive you. Your memories can deceive you. And then I would say, number two, inform what you see. Inform what you see. Take the theology that you know to be true of God and inform what you see. Say to yourself, this is how it feels, but this is who my God is. Right? This is how it feels, but this is who my God is. He is a God who is faithful, who is better than all other gods. Question what you see and inform what you see. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for this passage of scripture that helps us, that instructs us. And I pray that we would be more assured in our faith and we would produce, produce faith, uh, uh, fruits of faith that would strengthen our assurance. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.